I'm Marty Moss Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. Many years ago, when I was a young adult, I sought treatment from a therapist to help me deal with some of the unresolved issues from my childhood and to better understand myself and the choices I was making. It was a relief and a revelation to have a safe, private place to examine my life. Showtime's documentary series, Couples Therapy, flings open the doors on the therapeutic process, allowing us to watch real-life couples struggle with their relationships and the emotional inheritances from their families of origin. It's raw, it's intimate, and revealing. The program is hosted by Dr. Orna Goralnik, who guides couples through their conflicts with her probing questions, her laser focus, her patience, and her well-timed insights. I've learned a lot about myself from watching the show. Orna Goralnik joins us today on The Connection to share her insights about what we all want from our partners, where most couples get stuck, how they can get unstuck, and how coupledom is undergoing a profound transformation as we learn more about the diverse ways that human beings express their identities and sexual attractions. Orna Goralnik is a psychologist, psychoanalyst, and she teaches at NYU in their postdoctoral program and joins us today on The Connection. Great to have you with us on the show. Hi, Marty. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. And I have to say to you and to our listeners that I really love couples therapy. What do you hope viewers learn about their own relationships from watching other people's relationships on this show? Well, um, first of all, I hope they expand their humanity in a way and both understand that they're not so different from other people. Um, whether it's their partner or other people that they watch on the show, uh, people that are different from them or seemingly very different from them, sort of hoping that there will be like kind of enhanced empathy towards like humanity. I'm interested in how you choose the couples. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I would never go on your show with my husband to talk about our relationship. Um, uh, Not that it probably wouldn't help us, but but nonetheless, how do you choose the couples for the show? Because they're really, Um, I have to commend them for their courage, their honesty, their willingness to to struggle with themselves and each other on, on TV. Agree. I I have my the team and my we have like endless endless gratitude and uh, appreciation for the courage of people to just share themselves with the audience. Um, I personally don't choose the couples on the show. We have a team that is um, very busy interviewing many thousands of couples um, for to, for fitness for the show. But I think the general idea is to, um, first of all, reflect reality. Mm-hmm. So it's a diverse enough group of people that really reflect the reality on the ground, um, as well as people that, first of all, really want help rather than simply want to be on TV hmm. um, and are open, verbal, uh, representative, diverse, want to do the work. Yeah, that's, I think those are the sure. um, parameters. How did cameras, though, change the nature of therapy? You have a private practice, obviously no cameras there, and you have this this TV show. How do cameras change things? Um, it's interesting. We were not sure. First of all, we were not sure it's even possible when we started working on the show. So that was a big question we all had. 
how and will the cameras even make it possible? Um, and, you know, my people ask me about that a lot, of course, because it's mm -hmm. like cameras in the room, you let go of this, the, the frame of confidentiality, which is generally so sacred uh, when you do therapeutic work and is it going to work? Um, it changes things in, in different ways. Um, in one surprising fundamental way, it changes nothing. Hmm. Interesting. Um, it's really interesting. Like the work is the work is the work. And when you kind of delve into what people need to be talking about, oddly, the cameras don't make any difference because just the things that matter to people matter to people. And the way I work is just the way I work. And in certain ways, it doesn't change anything. Um, but in another way, the cameras are kind of, uh, they serve as a certain kind of witness and they they pose a certain demand on the couples and on me to kind of show up as fully as possible. There's this, um, this unspoken demand that um, it's now or never. Things are recorded. There's no way out of it. There's hmm. no next session. So there's a certain kind of ask that you show up. It's probably similar to the way you feel doing the, the shows on NPR. Sure. It's like, it's now or never. That's it. It's not a rehearsal. It's happening. I'm curious whether you think then cameras have made you a better therapist. Um, I Yes, in a certain way. I think the show participating in this, including the, the fact of the camera and the recording, have made me better in, similarly in the sense that it, it calls you to be fully present there's this feeling that it's not a rehearsal. It's like, it's real. You can't like not show up for whatever you're doing. Um, and the call to be present and to show up. Yeah. It does make you better. It makes you more real, like more, um, real accountable. <laughs> Do you like looking at yourself on camera? Um, no, I don't. I'm honestly, I mean, it's funny. The, the directors often comment on the fact that I seem so bizarrely neutral to that. It's sort of, I don't know, maybe I'm old enough. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, I don't like it. I don't not like it. Uh, it's just like, it's the same question of like, did I show up or not? Um, I, I, I don't, I, I oddly don't know how I feel about it. I know The Office is a set, and, and I read that it's, you know, tries to recreate, I guess, whatever private office that you have. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's warm, it's kind of neutral colors, very inviting, and, and looks casual and comfortable. I remember a number of years ago going to Freud's office in London um, and yeah. seeing the, his artifacts and the, and the rugs that covered everything. And I felt yeah. as I was there, you know, I think I could mine my my subconscious uh, in an environment yeah. like that. How important is the office? For me personally, it's super important. I know different analysts have different ideas about their offices. I mean, some people try to create a very neutral environment. Some people create these like offices that are very, very personal. Um, for me, 
of course, an environment is super important, both in terms of its aesthetics and, and both being inviting and personal, but not overwhelming whoever is in there with like me. Hmm. Uh, so, and the, um, the designers and um, the people who are responsible for creating my office for the show did like an incredible job of, they both spent a lot of time in my actual office and kind of felt their way into what matters to me. And, you know, like they did things like measure the distance between my chair and my patient's chair. And wow. they really got a sense of what matters to me. And then they asked me, like, if it was your dream office, what would you do better? And talked to me a lot about that um, and went off to the side, built the whole office. And then one day they called me in and they were like, okay, how does this look? <laughs> And I was really blown away. I was just like, mm -hmm. wow, this is like, you got into my subconscious and really created a dream office for me. Thank you. <laughs> That's so nice. You, you bring your dog to work. Your dog is there. How much yes. is your dog your co-therapist? My dog is a lot. <laughs> my dog is a lot for me for my, and for my patients and for the couples. Um, she she brings this kind of by nature she brings this kind of sweetness and and um simple simplicity of like feeling oh you can hear her barking um, <laughs> it's okay she's right here um she brings a lot um i've seen you know even in my private practice when i started bringing my dog in I've seen patients, I've seen sides of my patients that I haven't seen before, before I brought my dog in. Um, she, she reminds us of very basic things like sweetness and, and basic emotion and emotional responsiveness. Um, she's a great little entity to have with us. Well, I appreciate that she's there as well. You um, use a mix of, of psychoanalysis um, with systems theory. Is there a way to concisely describe how you then approach therapy? Sure. Um, I'll try to be concise. Um, psychoanalysis obviously is kind of this long, um, in-depth study of the unconscious, right? Of all the unconscious factors that bring us to be who we are and behave the way we behave. It can be our early histories. It can be parts of ourselves that we, it's hard for us to formulate or to acknowledge to ourselves. It's, it's a very methodical, deep way of functioning, of uh, exploring. Um, systemic work has more to do with the kind of patterns that people create with each other whether as groups or as organizations or as couples, it has to do with the function that each of us um, serves for some kind of collective. Um, and the, um, the way I do couples therapy blends those two discourses or methods of thinking together to kind of alternate my focus, like to, to, to help me figure out what matters for any couple that I'm working with. 
Kind of, did that make sense? It totally made perfect sense. Uh, about a minute before our first break here, I, I talked about the fact that I was in therapy as, as a, young, a young adult. I read that you were in therapy as, as a teenager. What did you learn? My dog is kind of agitated. Hold on. Nico, come here. Nico. <laughs> um, yeah, I. Um, that, that was nice to hear you share that. Mm-hmm. Um I, my first introduction into this whole world of like therapy and psychoanalysis was as a teenager. And, um, you know, I had like, I was one of those teenagers that had like a lot going on, like really intense time. Um, And getting into therapy um, was a real uh, door opening to a whole new language. And I both was in therapy and really good therapy. And I also started reading a lot of psychoanalysis. I read Mm. Freud, read Artie Lang. I read, you know, all sorts of like really interesting texts. And the combination made me feel like, and this is as one of those like intense teenagers made me feel like, oh my God, now I understand what's going on around me. It was like so confusing before and now I have a language that um, helps me make sense of the world around me. Well, we, Whether yeah, we have to leave it there, but only a, a very short break. We'll be right back talking with Orna Garon, that host of Couples Therapy on Showtime. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Our guest is Orna Goralnik. She's a psychologist, psychoanalyst, and host of Couples Therapy, which is on Showtime. Orna, I had to interrupt you only because we were coming up in a break, but you talked about as a teenager, and it sounded like you had really good therapy, it, it, it was a real aha experience for you. Yes, Yes, real aha and an introduction into a language that helped me really understand anew the world around me, whether it was my family, people, my own inner life. It was, um, yeah, it was a big change, big opening in my life that um, resulted in me becoming eventually an analyst. Well, I want to play a clip from uh, one of the episodes from Couples Therapy, and this is a couple, Sin and Yaya. In fact, they're having their first session with you, Orna, and um, they are greeted by your dog. And Sin remarks uh, that everyone warms up to her, uh, her girlfriend, Yaya. Let's give it a listen. They're always drawn to you. All the time. Yeah. All the time. Really? All the time. It's always her. Whether it be kids, whether it's dogs, it's always her. <laughs> what do you make of it? I'm okay with that. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. go. But what do you make of it? That's because she's so motherly. It's her, um, it's her nature. Mm-hmm. Motherly. Extremely motherly, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong with that, but maybe it's getting in your way a little bit as a couple. Oh. 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 Oh, like, hi, mom. What, you think I treat you like the kids? Mm. Orna, you you don't ease into this stuff, man. (laughs) 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 That just just came out of left field. (laughs) Yeah, she says, Orna, you don't just ease into this stuff. But I think it's such a a beautiful, it's one minute. 
going from Mm -hmm. the dog to mother to taking a look at their relationship? Yeah. You know, um, the, as psychoanalysts, we're trained to listen to all sorts of things that that typically you don't pay attention to. And um, one of it is words. There are words that have a certain kind of sound to them. They, they, they're like cues that give you kind of a, a deep link into unconscious layers, what Freud used to call the, the kind of the navel of the dream. Hmm. Um, and you also pay attention to beginnings and endings, but the beginning of a session often, I think of it as a, as a riddle that the rest of the session will then unpack. So the, the, the first dream a patient brings, the, the first words they use, they're often, none of us know exactly what they mean, but they often nest within them the rest of the session. And in hmm. this case, it's the beginning of a treatment, certain words will nest within them the meaning of the whole treatment. Um, and indeed, between Sin and Yaya, the question of Yaya being motherly was kind of at the heart of the matter. Yeah. It was interesting, too, when I heard it um, in that clip, you hear Sin exhale. (laughs) It's kind of a pause, and she exhales. How important was that, do you think? Well, that that was a great moment because so much became clear in that very little moment because it was a moment in which she stopped and reflected. So she, she left the concreteness of the moment and immediately signaled to me, oh yeah, we can do some thinking about things together. I'm open to that, which is not obvious. I mean, sometimes it takes people a long time to get to that point where they're willing to reflect on rather than be completely caught in the immediacy of what they're talking about. I mean, she could have said, what are you talking about? Sure. But she didn't, she she exhaled and she she was like, oh, let me think about that. Things can have multiple meanings. And that's great. That means we're working. Well, let me play an, another clip. And this is with a, another couple, Ping and Will. Um, and I should say they, they have a very contentious relationship. And in this clip, Orna, you essentially stop their, their bickering and, and question whether you can even work with them since they seem to have so little in common, so little that they agree on. Let's give it a listen. I'm a little... Um concerned about what's happening right now. Are you thinking for a second about what Will is saying to you, about his experience? Yes. And your response to that is that is a whole lot of... Whining. Whining. It's hard to know what to do in my seat with that response. Because if I can't rely on the two of you having some concern for each other, I don't know what we're doing here. But this growing resentment that I have for him has... has, It's not from any one incident. It's from all of these incidents where I see him choosing himself, choosing his needs, putting his needs, putting someone else's needs in front of mine. So, you know what? F*** you. All I hear is whining. I don't f***ing care. You know, it's really painful to to watch this couple. Um, and I'm sure as a therapist and knowing that we're watching them on TV, that must have been painful for you as well. 
Oh, yeah, it's well, sitting with people that are really hurting and hurting each other is very painful, um, sometimes unbearable. Um, what was happening in that moment is I was really trying to figure out the parameters of whether we can stay within like working together or it's veering towards like just mutual abuse. And I'm not there to to facilitate any kind of mutual abuse if we're not in the realm of work then i don't want to be doing this i i that's that's it's just no and if people can't commit to that i will stop the work um and they don't always know sometimes they need me to say this is not work this is just mutual hurt hmm. um and that's what was happening in that moment i mean luckily Ping made like tremendous, tremendous progress during our work together. And yeah. really, I mean, it was pretty dramatic to see her commit to the work and do the work. But that the moment that you chose was a moment in, in which it was not clear that it could happen. She was so um, caught by her own hurt that she just lost touch with her impact on him. And I needed her to make a choice and to show me that she's aware of the fact that there is a choice there between just dishing out her pain or holding it and and trying to re remember that there's another person out there her partner do you think using that as an example that underneath anger and conflict is hurt and pain that that's that's the driver in most cases, not always, in most cases, the the driver for hurt is underlying. The driver for inflicting um, pain on other people is one's own pain, one's mm. own injuries. Um, you know, in rare cases, we're talking about other things. It could be other kind of more sociopathic pathologies, but putting that on the side usually what we try to do is translate anger, rage, injury to to whatever is lying underneath it. Our guest today on The Connection is uh, Dr. Orna Goralnik. Uh, she's the host of Couples Therapy, which has had several seasons on Showtime. She's a psychologist and a psychoanalyst. From your experience working with so many different kinds of couples, what do all of us want in coupledom? I mean, if you can kind of boil it down into what do we want from another person that we're that we're intimate with, with that we're close with? Um, that's a great question. Um, first of all, it's not one thing. People in a, in in many ways they they want different things from their partnership and from their partner, and they have different models in mind of what it's about. But if I had to try to bring it into like some kind of common denominator, I'd say people want to feel part of something that is more than themselves. They want to feel like they belong somewhere. They want to feel understood. But I really believe that people also want um, love and couplehood to pull them out of themselves, hmm. to um, make them feel feel like there's more than just their own little solipsistic world to pull them out of narcissism. Uh, I do believe ultimately that's what people want, that they want to get out of themselves and transcend and be part of 
a larger entity, a larger world, to connect them to the rest of the world. And do you see people getting stuck in that they maybe were attracted to someone because they were different from them, but then when you're living with someone who's different from yourself, then those differences become an irritant? Uh, yes. <laughs> I think that always happens. I don't know any couple where it doesn't happen. I think there's this thing that um, pulls people together and creates this intense attachment that people can form with each other. Um, and that's often based on difference or on complementarity. And the, the bond then gets established. And then always there's some kind of moment or many uh, moments of crisis where the otherness of one's partner shows up and becomes this like great irritant. Um, and that's when the testing ground begins and that's when growth begins. And that's when the real challenge and the real beauty of being a couple begins really. Which is what valuing that other person's difference, not just like living with it or putting up with it, but actually appreciating it. It really, it's it's the gift of otherness is being able to see the world through another person's eyes. And that is a gift. And that's really hard. It is. Let me play another clip, and this gets us to families of origin, and that's something, Orna, you talk a lot with your with your on camera couples with about just the power of our of our families and where we came from. And in this clip, India and Dale, I should say to our listeners, they they're they're black, um, and the, the issue of forgiveness comes up. And interestingly, Dale uh, then talks about his father and and worries that he might end up being like his father. My dad had a very rough relationship with, with my grandfather. Mm -hmm. He was he was basically the black sheep of the family. In what way? Well, my grandfather was a pastor, mm -hmm. well-renowned pastor, and um, and my dad was kind of ex, you know ex, was set up with these expectations that he was going to be like my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And he was running around smoking weed and doing all the things that a pastor's son shouldn't do. So. And your mom. My mom put up with some really horrific things from my dad. And, uh... Horrific? Like physical abuse. Mm hmm Yeah. And... was loyal to him and stayed loyal to him through it all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, anything that seems, seemed confrontational, mm -hmm. she would go the other way. Mm hmm Maybe that's where I get it from. But maybe that's where you get like a, an extreme sensitivity to conflict. Yeah. Yeah. But it really rattles you if there's conflict. Yeah. I, I think it really rattles me too because I'm afraid that maybe I can be like my dad. There's so much in there um, yeah. that, that Dale is sharing with us. What do you hear? First of all, Marty, I'm like in awe of the segments you chose. Wow, thank oh, you. And I'm, oh, thank you. Yeah, and I'm missing the, I'm missing <laughs> when I'm listening to this. Yeah, movie. yeah, they're quite extraordinary. Uh, but yeah, no, please go yeah. ahead. Yeah. So 
this is it's this is kind of an extraordinary segment that you chose where you really hear the intergenerational transmission you hear three generations here in this like what is this like a two minute one minute segment one here one minute and 19 seconds yeah oh you hear um dale's grandfather the pastor and how he in his like complicated relationship with dale's father like the disappointment the deep disappointment that he passed on and then how that disappointment and feeling like the black sheep and the violence that he absorbed kind of get pushed onto or dumped on Dale's mom and, and Dale kind of witnessing and absorbing all of that to shape his dread of any kind of conflict between him and India mm. and, and panic that arises in him when India is simply saying something critical or just having an, a regular um, unhappy reaction to something, but the alarm that comes up in him that is transgenerational. And what I find so interesting about all of these couples is just how powerful those early childhood, not just experiences, but sort of years lived how that gets can get recreated and 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 lived as an adult yeah it's it's it is i mean that that's what the whole psychoanalytic practice is committed to but early experiences they they really shape um the the whole way a person interprets the world around them and then they get into these like adult relationships that that tug on the deepest parts of them and reenact the whole thing all over whether it's because that's their only way it's our only way of perceiving the world or whether it's with the hope that something new will happen that they will have a corrective experience and do you feel like it's it's your job, so to speak, as a therapist, which is to sort of lead them to these patterns, to this dance as you describe it, and and help them sort of see themselves in a different kind of way? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's my job to help people trace what they're reenacting from their past and ways in which that kind of reenactment of the past is um constricting what can happen to them because they they miss out on other things or they keep repeating certain things and and don't introduce new ways of behaving and then seeing how how much flexibility degrees of freedom there are to try new things to try new ways of experiencing the world yeah that's what it's all about has anything ever shocked you that you've been told by 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 patients yeah <laughs> yes many things shock me i actually probably with every patient or couple that i work with things surprise me sometimes shock me um i think what typically shocks me more than anything in a good way is people's ability creative ability to transcend things that happen to them. I mean, the fact that people reenact things from the past is, I, I know that already. I mean, that's sure. kind of the bread and butter. But when people find it in themselves to transcend, 
to forgive, to do something really different out of seemingly nowhere. That that shocks me and often delights me and inspires me to kind of keep going and learn from people that I work with. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, we have to take another very short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation. Again, our guest is Dr. Orna Goralnik. She's the host of Couples Therapy on Showtime. She's a psychologist, a psychoanalyst. We've been talking about what therapy is about, what being a couple is about, and we've been playing clips from the show as well. Much more after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen talking with Orna Goralnik. She is the host of Couples Therapy, which uh, airs on Showtime. And uh, it, it essentially opens the doors on, onto the therapeutic process so that we as viewers get to see what therapy is like and how struggle, how couples like all of us struggle with issues of, of intimacy. Let me play another clip. And Orna, you have an advisory group that, that helps you uh, with, with couples that you are having some struggles with. Um, and in this clip, you're talking with your advisory group about India and Dale, who we just met. They're African-American. Um, and the issue of race comes up about being a white therapist treating a black couple. Let's give it a listen. Can I just ask a question? Has your whiteness been named with them? In what way? Did they ever challenge you about it? No. I want them to. Mm. How? I think it would be inquiring deeper about that difference. Yeah. Because I think they're showing themselves, but I'm there's a, obviously more layers to them. Mm -hmm. Like she tells this story about getting into an argument mm -hmm. about Sandra Bland. And I kept thinking about how she feels so much pressure to live up to Dale's standards. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a way Dale wants to silence her mm -hmm. because of his own internal um, insecurities. Yeah. That is that internalized racism. Mm -hmm. Like if they were able to describe that. Right. But how do you get there? I think asking how it felt. And you could even be like, I know like I'm a white therapist, but could you help me understand what this feels like from your perspective? Mm -hmm. And Orna, you do ask them. What do they say? Um, yeah, it's, it's always like a very interesting and tricky domain to get into, which sure. is super important to do, but timing is key. Um, they, it, it they did this thing that often happens when you try to address race directly, which is first look kind of awkward and they're not sure whether I can handle what they really want to say. So there's this kind of discomfort that um, takes over in the room. Um, but then it opens up the door that to talking about like how race is sits in the room and how race um if we don't ultimately address it how it um restricts 
what is possible between us. You also wrote recently an interesting, I think it was in the New York Times, an article about uh, Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter, but also, you know, we've been through the pandemic. Hopefully we're on the <laughs> other side of it. Things like the climate crisis or even the insurrection is that all these outside events do mm -hmm. affect all of us as couples. How, how do you see that? And, and how do we how do we talk about that stuff? Yeah, that is, I mean, that's been, as an academic, that's been sort of the the main thing I've been busy with over the years is um, trying to find a way to bridge a way that our culture and psychoanalysis also um, suffers with the idea of trying to create the illusion of an individual that is separate from her cultural surrounds, as if that really exists. Um, I think Americanism is suffers from that too. Some idea that if you just sit at home and get busy mm. with your own little uh, capitalist environment and what you bought yesterday, then you can like defend yourself from like the big things that are happening in the world. And um, you know whether it's like race relations or class relations or climate or any of that, uh, none of us are immune to the fact that we depend on each other and we're part of this big thing. And I think the pandemic has made it very, very clear um, that whatever's happening in China is gonna make its way over here and whatever's happening down the road from us is gonna eventually happen in your own home. Um, I think it's been a very important moment for humanity. Um, right. My work is very much about that, like how to get people talking about all of these issues, um, how to get couples talking between them about whether it's the difference between them in terms of their class background, race, religion, their gender politics, how to talk to me as their analyst about the differences between us. Um, it's we have to talk about these things. I mean, they shape us, they they keep us separate from each other. And until we figure out a way to really address it, uh, we're heading in a very bad direction, as we all know right now, looking at what's happening here and in the world at large. Yeah, connection. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> connection, yeah. L let me just do a, a little bit of a segue here, but I do want to play another clip um, with another couple. This is Nadine and Christine. And, and I just have to say, I was really very moved by this young couple and, and their struggles, which were very much on the screen. But here they are telling, it's, their, it's the first session, and, and they're telling you uh, why they're coming in for treatment in their first session. And I'll, I'll just let them explain. Okay, um, so we are here uh, because Nadine has... We've, we need to transition into polyamory. Nadine is oriented as polyamorous. Sorry, we need to? Well, not need to. Well, there is a need in the sense of our relationship will not continue if we don't. Um, there's a lot of love in the relationship, of course, but I think we need to get to a place where we are both comfortable in a relationship dynamic that works for both of us. Um kind of tempted to break it down immediately. Mm -hmm. I'm please, like jumping please. right go, in. Go. So yeah. I'm just curious about this use of need to. Mm -hmm. 
It sounds like the hope is that it will solve something, but what will it solve? Why does the relationship need it? Hmm. And, and you, you focused in on the word need. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's another example of like how the the beginning, the first session, the first words used in a way nest within them kind of the riddle of the whole treatment arc. Um, and that really was what um, a lot of the work with Nadine and Christine was about, figuring out like, wait, who needs why the question of polyamory, what is it there for with this couple? Um, who's the one that needs and who's the one that then adjusts and, and can they pay the price? Yeah, that that was hmm. the question that stayed with us for a lot of the the months that we worked together. I mean, one of the things I learned is that in, in an open type relationship or a polyamorous relationship, that that it, the couple has to pay even more attention to each other if they're going to mm -hmm. have a chance at making it work. Yeah. Yeah, it's been very interesting to watch the change in the culture where so many couples now are trying out new models of like relationship and new new structures and um what's striking i mean people often think of polyamory as like oh it's just about like having more sex more fun and i'm like actually no it's people who are taking relationships incredibly seriously and um they have to pay attention to incredible nuances that uh, normative couples don't do, don't spend the time doing. Uh, it's just, it's interesting to watch people uh, explore those new domains. And struggling with this typical issue of jealousy that would come if your yeah. partner is having a, an intense, intimate relationship with somebody else. Right. Jealousy, possessiveness, um, what is love as opposed to what is selfishness? It's very interesting, hard. You you reference this, but I want to just dig a little bit deeper. And I think it's so interesting because we can see in our culture and, and I think around the world, there's this greater understanding about the diversity of sexual orientation and gender identity. We're really moving beyond this sort of binary, heterosexual view of couples. How do you see what's going on? Um, just what you, I, I like the way you just summarized it. There's um, so much has changed and there's, there's a complicated relationship between gender and sexuality and then the structures of relationship or couplehood that support those. But the moment you start tweaking any of these, if you change gender politics, let's say feminism changed a lot of gender politics, and then you change um, the, the, um, the idea of what is gender, if you become less binary about it, you've changed both power dynamics and the definition around male, female, um, and you've opened up um, a vast new world of possibilities, like so many new things can happen. And then if you want to put that in the context, in the larger political context of like uh, a wider understanding of like, let's say, class politics and how um, capitalism shapes how we think about possession, 
then you explode open like why do we have particular frames around like marriage hmm. hetero marriage who possesses who and why and and what is it serving so you know the 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 last i don't know 80 years have been like really brought us to this point here between like new ideas of capitalism nationalism new ideas of gender politics feminism then queer theory all of that brought us to the moment here where we don't take for granted that relationships have to look one way it's not necessarily the uh, male female uh, old style hmm. forms of possessing each other and I would um, even add to that neurodiversity, right? We're sort of moving beyond yes. the ADHD view of the world and into something yes. that's that's different. No, go ahead, please. Yes, I would add the the idea of like what is normative and what is not. And if we really want to put everything in the mix, then hmm. think about climate crisis. Sure, right. And I'm 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 not even. This is not even. I'm not even joking about it. But like, if you look at how climate crisis affects the way we think about um, how are we to live together, we have to, if we really want to address the fact that we're, we all need to bond together to deal with what's going on, then we can't just each barricade ourselves inside like small units, like the small unit of the family. We've got to expand the way we think about um, the structures that connect us um, we, we're mutually dependent. It's not going to work if we don't um, burst open these tiny little units. We can't just circle the wagons around a small unit of family. We have to like open up the idea that we depend on each other. We have to cooperate with each other. We can't hide behind small units any longer if we want to address what's coming. It's not only coming, it's here. Um it's interesting to hear you frame it that way because uh, the Surgeon General, as we know, has issued this warning about this crisis of loneliness that so many people mm -hmm. are experiencing. And I knew you grew up in Israel for some time. Yes. And so I hear the kibbutz, you know, when you're, yes. when you're talking that way. But go ahead. Yes, I, I, I'm certainly deeply influenced by sort of the kibbutz mentality. Um, there are um ideologies and ways of living together that foster more of this idea of mutual dependence mutual responsibility as opposed to barricading around tiny little units mm -hmm. and i think you know we're, we're always in conflict between wanting to pull back and defend our own versus open up and realize that we're responsible to each other and i think we're, we're witnessing you know, what's happening in this country in a way is this kind of um, tension between those two forces. It's certainly happening in Israel now. Um, Indeed. Yeah. Let me play one more clip. And this is actually you with, with Nadine and, and Christine, who we just heard about. Um, and, and you're saying goodbye to them. And, and as I mentioned, Nadine and Christine really struggled with their relationship to try to keep it together. They Hopefully this is not a you know, breaking confidence here, but they realized separately and together that it just really wasn't going to work out for them. But nonetheless, this is how you say goodbye. I'm really going to miss you too. Oh, really? Same. Clearly, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it was. <laughs> it's been very moving. 
moving to see how a relationship can morph and not get kind of bound by very particular ideas of what a relationship is. And personally, it's been very important for me to work with the two of you, mm. both because of the Palestinian-Israeli, the Lebanese-Israeli. Mm. I mean, it's all deeply important to create this kind of possibility. Mm-hmm. I'm really grateful. Hmm. I really like that. Yeah, that was that was incredibly moving for me to work with them. They they were both lovely as people, um, incredibly honest, incredibly honest, open, committed to the truth, um, brave, gentle. Um, but it was also personally super meaningful for me to work with a couple that was indeed Palestinian with the history of like the horrible conflict between Israel and Palestine. And, and um, Christine talked openly about the, the trauma that her family suffered um, being occupied by Israel. And then Nadine, who's half Lebanese, and you know, my, my brother, when he was young, fought in Lebanon. The, the history of um, conflict and, and trauma between these nations and us sitting there in the room and trying to create this kind of island of humanity where we can acknowledge these differences between us, acknowledge the horrors that have happened in all directions and still speak to each other and imagine a way that there that one can bridge these um historical and not only historical that it's happening now um differences that nationalism and ideology can create between people hmm. to kind of send that was super important to me and not ignore it like not pretend that it's not there not pretend that there's kind of a simple solution to it I hold it yeah I gotta jump in here only because they're playing my song we have to say goodbye Orna Goralnik thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection thank you so much for inviting me you're welcome Al Banks the engineer for today's edition of The Connection thanks for joining us as well